At this time, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Our text today is uh, verses 28 through 30. I'm not going to uh, attempt a close exposition of these verses today. Um, We're certainly going to consider what they mean and how it applies to us, but uh, I'm going to draw in a lot of other scriptures to try to highlight what I believe is the main thrust of this passage today. Um, When I was here last month, uh, we're making a a nice habit of this. I like this habit. Uh, When I was here last month, uh, I spoke from Ecclesiastes. And we looked at the reality that when people live without God, that life is very empty. It's vanity. It's futility. It's hopelessness. It's a waste of time and energy. It leads to a weariness of soul. And the passage today addresses what we should do about that weariness of soul. Listen to Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 28 through 30. Jesus is speaking and He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's Word for today. May He add His blessing to it, and write its eternal truths upon our hearts. All of us have experienced weariness. Um, My daughter is certainly experiencing weariness this year. She's in her junior year in high school. And we've heard it from a lot of different people that the junior year is the worst year. And she's had a tough go of it. Uh, In the fall semester, she was taking seven classes, four of them being either dual credit classes or advanced placement classes, which are basically college-level classes. So she was taking like four college-level classes plus three other academic classes, no freebies in there. In addition to that, she ran cross-country and participated in drama. I don't know how she got through it. Um, she was very tired most of the time, physically exhausted. And because of the the stress and strain of it, she was also emotionally exhausted. Thankfully, I believe my daughter has learned what it is to rest in Christ for salvation. And therefore, she was not also bearing the burden of spiritual weariness. I mean, all of us do to some extent. I I think any Christian in this house would agree that that there are many times that we fall back into 
a, a kind of works mentality where we're striving to earn God's favor and, you know, we're running on this spiritual treadmill and not getting anywhere. And then we wake up and go, wait a minute, I don't have to be doing this. This passage addresses the spiritual weariness that all of us experience in part and certainly unbelievers experience in great measure every day. Now, bear in mind, of course, what Paul says in Romans 1, that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So, many of the people who are not believers, who are not Christians, who do not live with and for God, will suppress the truth of their spiritual weariness. They won't admit it, certainly not to us. They'll deny it. They'll say everything's fine. But on the inside, they know better. And they're crumbling under the weight. Jesus identifies for us in this passage what to do about spiritual weariness. He tells us to do two things. Come to me and take my yoke. Come to me is probably referring to the response of faith. We come to Him because we believe in Him. We're depending on Him. We know we can't do it without Him. Take my yoke is bearing a burden, though. I thought we were getting rid of a burden. Yes, we are. The irony here is you get rid of a burden by taking a burden. The burden that you're taking on is the burden of receiving Christ as Lord, surrendering to Him through what we simply call repentance. So, even though the words are not here, Jesus is basically saying, if you are spiritually tired, you need to have faith and repent. He said it more clearly and directly in Mark chapter 1 when He began His public ministry. We read that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's what we read earlier in the Shorter Catechism. Question 85, what does God require of us to escape His anger and curse, which we rightly deserve for our sin? So, okay, first of all, we've sinned. We deserve God's anger and curse. We deserve to go to hell. We deserve this spiritual weariness and burden. But there's an escape. How do we get out of that? The answer is this, to escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for our sin, God requireth of us, number one, faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, repentance unto life. Those are the basic two. Now, the catechism goes on to talk about what, what I would more commonly call spiritual disciplines. With the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. How does Christ give us grace? How do we experience the benefits of redemption? We do it in Christian fellowship. We do it through worship. We do it through reading and studying the Word. We do it through prayer, the spiritual disciplines. But the foundational, initial response to Christ that's required for us to escape God's anger and curse is faith and repentance. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at those two required responses... And we're going to examine both the requirement of it, why it's required, 
and what it really looks like. What is it when we talk about faith and repentance? What is it to come to Jesus? What is it to take His yoke upon us? First, then, we're going to talk about faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is required. We must come to Jesus. We must receive Him. We must believe in Him. Scripture testifies to that over and over again, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes will have eternal life, will not perish. Or in Acts 16, when the Philippian jailer thought all the prisoners had escaped and he was about to kill himself and Paul said, hold it, don't do that, we're all here, it's okay. The jailer came in and said to Paul, what must I do? To be saved. Wouldn't you agree that's the most important question someone can ask? That's great. And you know what the answer was? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Faith is required. Catechism question 86 defines faith this way. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He's offered to us in the gospel. I love that definition of faith. Notice first, it's a saving grace. A grace is something like a gift. You didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, God gave it to you. So faith is not a work. It's not something that I did that earns God's favor. No, it's something God gave to me and I exercise that faith. That's the means by which I receive salvation. It's a saving grace. It's not only something God gives me, but it's something by which God saves me. And then it says that in faith... We receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He's offered to us in the gospel. I think that demonstrates for us that true faith is made up of three elements, three pieces, if you will. Knowledge, assent or agreement, and trust. If all three parts are not there, you do not have true faith. Let me explain. Knowledge. To have true faith in Jesus Christ, you have to know who Jesus is. You can't have faith in Jesus if you don't have knowledge of what the Scripture actually teaches about Him. That's why the Catechism says, as He is offered to us in the Gospel. Someone said, you know, there's 100,000 men named Jesus in Mexico, and not one of them will save you. There's only one Jesus who will save you. It's the Jesus who is revealed in the Bible. You'll find among non-Christians, and sometimes even Christians, a tendency to say, well, I don't believe that Jesus or God is thus and so. You know, well, my God would never, you know, and, and oftentimes they're contradicting the Scripture. If you don't worship the God who is in fact revealed in Scripture and accept that that's what He is like, you're not worshiping the true God. So you have to know what the Bible says about Jesus to have faith in Jesus Christ. Knowledge is required. In Romans 10.14, Paul said, How are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? 
They have to hear the facts. They have to know the facts. Knowledge is the first thing. Assent or agreement. It's not enough to be able to say, well, I know the Bible says that Jesus is fully God, fully man, died on the cross to pay for my sin. You have to agree that it's true, right? I mean, my daughter's taking AP Biology. She's got a textbook that's saturated with evolution. I can tell you what the book says. I have knowledge of it, but I don't agree with it. You see, so true faith requires not just the knowledge, but agreement. Not just something intellectual, but, but that emotional or heart commitment to it. Now you would think, well, isn't that all you need? Isn't that faith when, when you actually believe that what the Bible says about Jesus is true? No, that's, that's actually not enough. I would argue that there are a lot of folks in churches this morning, maybe here, who know what the Bible says and believe it to be true, but they're not saved. Because they've never personally relied upon those truths. They've never depended upon it for their salvation. You see, James says something rather surprising. He says, you believe there is one God? Okay, the Bible teaches it. I believe it. He says, good. Even the demons believe and tremble. Listen, the the demons have the knowledge and agreement. They know it's true. But they've not bowed the knee. They've not surrendered. They've not trusted. So the third element of salvation, of of saving faith, is absolutely mandatory. And the, the catechism defines it this way. We receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation. That is, we say, Jesus, I rely on You to save me, to put me in a right relationship with the Father, and to get me into heaven. Because I can't do it myself. We rest on Him alone. That's the nature of trust. Um, A little while back, actually at the beginning of Christmas break, uh, I had hernia repair surgery. And my doctor said, okay, six months, don't lift anything over 15 pounds. I was restricted and limited as far as what I could do. There were a lot of things I was used to doing that I couldn't do anymore. You know, and I when I get home with the groceries or my wife gets home with the groceries, I usually, you know, if it's Walmart plastic bags, I I get about eight of those bags on my arm, you know, and try to get it all in one shot if I can. I, I couldn't do that after the surgery. You know, if if I went shopping, then when I got home, I could maybe carry in one or two items. A gallon of milk is almost the 15-pound limit, right? So I could, I could carry in one or two items, but then I'd have to ask for help. I would have to depend on someone else to do what I could not do. That's what faith is like. You're recognizing, I can't do it. I have to depend on someone else. Why is this kind of faith necessary? Why must we rest in Christ alone for salvation, not Christ plus me? 
Why must I rest in Him for salvation, not just trusting Him for good health or safety in travel? Why must I do that? Because I can't save myself. I have a lot of control over how I drive down the highway, but I can't control how the other people drive. I can control a lot of things about my life, but I cannot save myself. Scripture is absolutely clear about this. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. In other words, there's a final examination. You're going to stand before God. And His standard is perfection. Be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And there is nobody in the world who can stand before God and say, I'm perfect, God. I've done everything that was required of me and nothing that was forbidden of me. When God looks at our lives, He sees the reality. He sees all the weaknesses, all the failures. He knows it all. And God is a God of truth. He cannot lie. He cannot look at someone who has broken the law and say, you're perfect. At least not in and of themselves. He can do that when we've had the great exchange of giving our sin to Jesus and receiving His righteousness. Which is what justification is. So, by keeping the law, no one's going to measure up. No one can be declared righteous by God. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can't do it. So we must depend on someone else. And the only someone else who can save us is Jesus. He said it in John 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the only way. In Acts 4.12, Peter said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, if we are to get rid of our spiritual weariness, if we have been laboring and are heavy laden spiritually, if we need rest, the first thing we need to do is come to Jesus by faith and rely on on Him, not ourselves. As far as I know, most of you, if not all of you, are Christian. You've already taken that initial step of, of relying upon Jesus for salvation. But remember what I said earlier. I think we all have a proclivity for forgetting that. Uh, and, and thinking we need to measure up to earn God's favor. If you've trusted in Christ, you are justified by faith. You are declared righteous. Your sins are forgiven once and for all. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God cannot and will not ever take that away from you. You're part of the family. And He doesn't disown any of His sons and daughters. But we do need to keep relying upon Jesus and keep trusting in Him and keep believing His promises. The second thing that is required is repentance unto life. Repentance, just as much as faith, is required. 
Sometimes this is a confusing point for Christians. They see the scriptures that, that testify about the need for faith, and many of them never mention repentance or works or anything like that. Right? John 3.16, Whosoever believeth. And that's all it says. And what did Paul say to the Philippian jailer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He didn't mention repentance. So there are a lot of folks out there who think all i got to do is believe. And, and the really dangerous thing is they often have a minimalistic view of, of saving faith. We've already addressed that. But I want to make it clear that the Scripture teaches that we must repent. It is absolutely mandatory for salvation. Jesus said, come to me and take my yoke. A yoke is a burden. A yoke is something you put on the animal in order to make that animal do the work you want it to do. It's very interesting to me that in Romans, when Paul talks about how we used to be slaves to sin, he doesn't say, now you're totally free. He says, now we are slaves of God. The only question is, whose slave will you be? The human condition is one of slavery, according to Paul, to use his language. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. You can't be utterly free. Jesus says, come to me and take my yoke. Now he does say, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now if I'm going to have a master who I must obey, that's the kind of master I want. Someone who is gentle. Someone who is lowly in heart. Someone who's not going to be harsh in his demands or abusive. And Jesus is such a master who will love us and be gentle with us even as he places upon us great demands. And he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We could spend a whole sermon just exploring that and what what does Jesus mean that his burden is light and his yoke is easy? Because the Christian life is certainly not what I would typically call easy. There is a hard element to it. But there's joy and there's peace. There is rest for your souls that comes with taking the yoke of Christ. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter had preached to a large audience. And they asked a question very much like the Philippian jailer. They said, Brothers, what shall we do? They had been convicted of sin. They realized that they were guilty of crucifying the Lord of glory. And they said, What shall we do? They were feeling that spiritual weariness. What shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. Did you notice what Peter didn't say? He didn't say, believe. All he said was repent. Now, if you take that out of context and view it in isolation, you might come to the conclusion that we're saved by our works. We have to stop sinning and start doing what's right, and then we can be saved. But, but folks, biblically, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. True faith can never, ever be separated from true repentance. And I'll give you a simple illustration to demonstrate it. The Bible says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We're headed this way. We're going our own way. And it makes us spiritually weary. Jesus says, come to me and take my yoke. It involves turning away from sin and to Christ. Now did you notice, I made one action. I turned from my way to Jesus' way. But I accomplished two things. I turned away from sin and I turned to Jesus. The turning to Jesus is faith. The turning away from sin is repentance. If I'm walking this way and the answer is to turn around and go that way, then I have to do both of those things at the same time. They can never be separated. The Shorter Catechism defines repentance unto life as a saving grace. Once again, it's something God gives you whereby we are saved. But then it says this, in in repentance, a sinner being truly aware of his sinfulness, understands the mercy of God in Christ, grieves for and hates his sins, turns from them to God, fully intending and striving for a new obedience. That's the modern English version. It's a little bit different from what's in the bulletin, but the content's the same. I want you to notice that just like faith, there are three elements in true repentance. Knowledge, assent, and turning. Knowledge. The the catechism says that the sinner, in order to repent, has a true sense of his sin. You know that what you've done is wrong. You have a true sense of your sin. That's not the only thing you have to know to repent. Because see, if all I knew was that I had blown it, but I did not also know the mercy of God, I would never turn to Him. I would run the other way. I would run scared and hopeless. But if you know your sin, and you know, as the Catechism says, apprehends the mercy of God in Christ... If you know your sin and you know God's mercy, that's the first part of repentance, the knowledge. Second part, assent. Here's what I mean by that. Catechism says, with grief and hatred of his sin. See, it's one thing to know that what I'm doing is wrong. It's completely different to agree with God in terms of the attitude of your heart toward that action or behavior. I know of someone who believes herself to be a Christian, but is a practicing lesbian. And she thinks it's fine, no problem. Point out the scriptures that indicate that it's sin, and she doesn't want to accept it. 
She says, no, you know, she's one of these wanting to worship her own God instead of the God revealed in Scripture. You know, this is love and blood, you know, don't have to go into all the details. But the bottom line is, she does not agree with God's assessment. Do you agree with God's assessment about your sin? Do you agree that it is grievous and horrific? That it is terrible? That it is uh, that, that it demonstrates the true rebellious core of your sinful nature. Do you grieve over it and hate it? Because that's how God feels towards sin. He hates it. Now, all of us, in some sense, feel sorry for our sins. But Paul makes the distinction between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. He says, Godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. One leads to salvation, the other produces death. There's a big difference. How do we recognize the difference? You say you're sorry that you did it. What do we mean by that? Well, let's suppose that what you did um, was you were driving down the road and saw the blue lights in your rearview mirror, looked down at the speedometer, and realized you were 18 miles an hour over the speed limit. Yikes! And that cop is looking for you. Now, at that moment, any sane person experiences sorrow and regret. You pull over, and you know you go through the routine, cop, cop writes you a ticket, and all that. Now, is it godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? Here's how you tell. When you get back in the car and you pull off and the cop pulls off, you're looking in the rearview mirror, you see him there, and then you notice that the cop pulls into the median and starts heading the opposite direction on the highway. What do you do? Do you push heavier on the accelerator again? Because now I'm really running late. I've got I've to catch up, right? Or do you change your behavior? Are you sorry you got caught? Are you sorry you've got this fine to pay? That there were consequences to your actions that are undesirable? Or are you sorry that you offended your holy creator by doing that which he forbids? Do you say, God, I'm sorry. You have told me to submit to the authorities that you've put over me. And you put over me those who have established the laws of the road. And I chose to rebel against that. And in doing so, I was rebelling against you. I am so sorry. I never want to rebel against you again. Please help me from now on to abide by the speed limit and follow the rules so that I can honor you by the way I drive even when no one else is looking. You hear that last part? Even when no one else is looking. If it's three o'clock in the morning and there's no other cars on the road, are you still going to abide by the speed limit? Or are you going to say, now's my chance to do what I wanted to do? Godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? True repentance involves knowing its sin, grieving over the sin itself, the offense against God, not just the consequences, and then the turning. We must actually turn from sin unto God fully intending and striving for a new obedience. Why is 
such repentance necessary. I mean, if we believe Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that we're saved by grace through faith alone, why is repentance necessary? Well, aside from the illustration I gave earlier about how they always go together, there's several verses we could look at. Let me just mention two quickly. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's pretty blunt. Luke fifteen, uh, Luke 13, rather. Jesus is talking with some people who knew about some tragedy in their day. You know? Oh, did you hear about so-and-so's house that was hit by the tornado? They must have been really sinful people, Jesus. And Jesus pointed out a couple of other times when such things happened, but... He said, you know, here's the bottom line. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He was saying that to the religious folks of his day. Unless you repent, you're going to perish. So if you don't believe me, believe Jesus. You've got to repent. It's part of the deal. It's part of what's required to receive this spiritual rest that he speaks of here. You will find rest for your souls. In closing, let me read for you one more passage that highlights the necessity of both of these things. It's from Isaiah 55, which is one of the most glorious chapters in the Bible, I think. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let Him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Do you want to receive God's abundant pardon of your sins? Do you want to receive that rest for your souls that Jesus spoke of? Then Isaiah says, do this. Seek the Lord and call upon Him. Faith. Pursue Him. Rely on Him. But He also says, let the wicked forsake His way. Let Him return to the Lord. You must repent. You must turn away from sin and turn to God. And beloved, when you do so, whether for the first time or the 118,000th time, When you turn to God in faith and repentance, you will find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are a tired people. And Jesus is the only one who can give us true rest. Grant, please, that every one of us here would trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and turn away from our sins. Grant that our family members would do so and our neighbors would do so. Grant that people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language would find rest in Jesus Christ in whose name we now pray. Amen. As our hymn of commitment 
Let us sing together, Jesus, I come. To thee. Beloved, receive now the Lord's benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Amen.